was a campus minister at the University of Vermont, a friend once presented him with a really remarkable gift. He gave him a hundred trillion dollars. It was totally legit, too. It was real money. He even gave it to Dad in cash. It was a remarkable gift, but it wasn't a valuable gift. Dad's friend was from Zimbabwe, and the gift was a banknote for $100 trillion in hyperinflated Zimbabwean currency. It looked very impressive. Mom still has it. But it wasn't valuable. It was essentially worthless. Now, you know what else has the appearance of great value but can prove to be worthless in the end? Some people's Christianity. You realize, don't you, that there is such a thing as worthless Christianity. It's worthless because it doesn't do any good on earth, and in the end, it won't do you any good in getting you to heaven. And friends, believe me, you do not want this kind of Christianity. And today, the Apostle James wants to help us. He's going to distinguish for us between religion that is worthless and religion that is pure and undefiled and acceptable in the sight of God. And if we can rightly understand the difference, then we can rightly evaluate our own souls and ask the question and ask it to our prophet, will our own profession of Christianity ultimately find favor before God the Father? So please go ahead and turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1. The book of James chapter 1. You can find the book of James near the end of the New Testament in the back of your Bible. And if you're using a blue Bible from the seats in front of you, it's on page 1011. As you turn, let me take us again to the the Lord in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, I would ask that you would sift our hearts today. Your word has a diagnostic effect. Your word is going to show us what pure religion is like. Your word is going to show us what worthless religion is like. Help us, Lord, to look into your word and receive it, that we might profit from it to the saving of our souls. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Now let's read from the book of James, chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So here's the first point that I think James is making in our text. You might see that if you want to follow along in the insert in your bulletin. It comes from these verses, 19 through 21. Here's the point. Hear the word. Receive the word. See, James realizes that there are two postures, two kinds of attitudes that a person can have with respect to the word of God. You can either have an arrogant attitude 
in which case you will not be in a position to receive God's word. But on the other hand, you can have a teachable attitude, one that will allow you to receive and profit by the word of God. So what are the attitudes? What's the profitable attitude? What's the unprofitable attitude? He says, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. All right, quick to hear what? Quick to hear what? Look back at verse 18. Verse 18, James says, of his own will, God brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So in the previous passage that BJ preached last Sunday, God is the giver of every good gift. The foremost and most wonderful of his gifts is the new birth of the Father's own lavish, free grace. He brings us forth into glorious new life in Jesus Christ. And what is the means that we saw by which he uses, which he uses to cause us to be born again? It's the word of truth. The gospel word, as found in the written word, which points us to the eternal word, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in light of that reality, let us, my beloved brothers, be quick to hear. Quick to hear what? Quick to hear God's word. Be in the posture always of a listener, of a learner. And the flip side of that is then to be slow to speak and slow to anger. Now remember that James is writing to a group of believers in Jesus who are undergoing severe trial. And there are certain particular temptations that come when we're going through the stress of a trial. And one of the things we tend to do when we're under stress is we run our mouths. And we flare up and we start running our mouths. With what result? We leave relational devastation in our wake. We're upset by some frustrating scenario and boom, suddenly we blow up. Often we blow up at a harmless bystander. Someone who's not even connected to the thing that's really bugging us, but they become collateral damage anyway. Let's, let's get practical. The situation with the coronavirus is a trial that's affecting every single one of us in different ways. Some of us more than others, but all of us are under strain over the last two years as a result of this particular trial. And I don't know about you, but over these past two years, as various aspects of this trial have pressed in on me, I found occasion, and I use that term advisedly, I found occasion to become angry. I can remember in the very early days, spring of 2020, when I was still serving at East Randolph Baptist Church, and nobody knew yet very much about what this would all look like, and we were scrambling, trying to get things online, figure out how the church was going to function You know, when we were scattered, figure out unfamiliar technology. And often I found myself just getting short, and especially with my children. They'd do something mildly irritating, maybe even a minor disobedience, and I'd be preoccupied 
with the situation that was some situation that was being made more complicated by the virus or by the quarantine or by the policies, and bam, it had come out at my kids, and I'd come down on them with unwarranted severity. And then as the weeks turned into months, and the months dragged on, there have been a number of times I'll be trying to wrap my head around something connected to coronavirus policy that I think doesn't make sense, and I'll be talking it over with Elisa. Why would I talk it over with Elisa? Because she's a physician. She knows the lingo. And I've gotten intense. Intense, shall we say. (laughs) With my dear wife. As if she's the one that's making the policy. Which she's not. Guess what? She doesn't appreciate that very much. When I'm stressed by the time of trial, I flare, I run my mouth. This nearly two-year trial, this particular one, has obviously been the occasion for much anger in our society. Some of its anger and conflict directly connected to the pandemic and to public health responses, all of the many tentacles. Some of it's just been anger because during times of trial and stress, we're tempted to flare and run our mouths. Quick to speak. Quick to anger. When James would call us to be slow. And of course, it doesn't just apply to COVID. Let me ask you, how are you, in perhaps whatever trial, the Lord may have you in a season of trial, how are you being enticed toward sinful anger? What trials are bringing your temper to the surface? Whether it's flare-ups or testiness or in some of our personalities, moodiness or settled bitterness. And maybe you end up shooting misdirected at your family, misdirected anger at your family like I was doing, or maybe you blow off steam on social media, or you become angry at brothers and sisters in Christ because they don't share your perspective on something. And pretty soon, what we've done is we've done people's work for him. We've introduced disharmony into the community, either into the community of our family or perhaps the community of God's people in the church, the family of God. And isn't that just what the devil wants to replace the love, to replace the love that is supposed to be governing every one of our interactions and to replace it with discord. So, what does James have to say to us when we're in the midst of those trials that press us and stress us? He just says, know this, my beloved brothers, Let every person, implication, every believer, obviously, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Why? For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. See, an attitude and a posture of being quick to hear the word and slow to speak, slow to run our mouths, slow to anger, because this righteous life that God calls us to cannot be promoted, cannot be promoted through human anger. Anger will not help you toward righteousness. 
Anger will not help you produce the fruit of the Spirit. Anger will not help you towards sanctification. Anger will not promote in you love for the Lord your God or love for your neighbor. Anger will not build up the body of Christ. Anger will not exalt or honor the Lord Jesus in the world. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, what about righteous anger? Anger at sin, anger at injustice that reflects God's hatred of those things. Jesus with his whip in the temple and the money changers. Well, of course there is a category for righteous anger. And James doesn't say never be angry. He says be slow to anger. But notice, he also does not spend a lot of time explaining the exceptions, does he? Because righteous anger is such a rare and uncommon thing among us. So he can simply say, uncomplicatedly say, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So at a very minimum, at a very minimum, suspect yourself. Suspect yourself. At a minimum, run your anger by a trusted brother or sister. Let them weigh in on the workings of your heart. And if your anger does not pass the extremely high bar for righteous wrath, stop justifying it and seek repentance. Stop justifying anger and seek repentance. Seek instead an attitude of humility and meekness and hearing the word of God. Because those things promote salvation and righteousness. The anger of man does not. Then James goes on in verse 21. He says, therefore, put away all filthiness and all rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Now, this is still more on the attitude that we're to have. This is the same sort of language you can find in lots of places throughout the New Testament. Put off those things that characterized you before you knew Christ. Put off the old man. Put off the flesh. And live like nations that you actually are. Because remember, believers, again, verse 18, believers are the first fruits of the new creation. You and I, brothers and sisters, represent the breaking in of God's eternal kingdom, which he will bring in on the last day. We're already the first fruits of that. The kingdom's already coming through us. Jesus is making all things new, starting with the church, starting with believers. Therefore, we, as representatives of his kingdom in the here and now, we cannot turn back to the ugly things that were part of our old life of sin. The things that belong to the old man, we cannot turn back to them. So James says, put them away. Put away the filthy wickedness. He describes wickedness as rampant. Rampant. Yes, we're new creatures in Christ, but sin is still like weeds on miracle grow. And your heart, dear child of God, Your life is supposed to be a fruitful garden, a fruitful field. Which means, what do you have to do? You have to keep the ground clear. 
You have to keep the ground clear so that you can receive the good seed, receive the implanted word. And that means getting out your weed popper and your garden weasel, dating myself, TV commercials from the 90s, Get out your hoe, get out your mattock, get out your loppers, get out your clippers, get out your protective gloves, and rip sin out at the roots. And then next day, wake up and survey the field of your life and say, more weeds. Okay, time to get after it again. Ruthlessly dealing with sin. Perhaps even he means especially the relational sins of anger and mouth running that he's already just talked about. And as the soil is cleared and kept clear and the weeds kept keep being pushed back and at bay through us putting them off, then we're in a place where we're ready to receive with meekness, with humility, the implanted word. And it can take firm root in us, and it has room to grow and thrive because sin is continually being kept away. And we need the word to thrive in us because that's what's able to save our souls. How did the Father cause us to be born again to this new life? Verse 18, it's through the word of truth, through the gospel. How then must we continue to make progress in this life? By remaining in the humble attitude of a hearer, the posture of a learner, which means rejecting anger, rejecting wickedness, putting our hands over our mouths, as it were, and humbly continuing to receive the word of the gospel, which God implanted in us and which first gave us life. Hear the word. Hear the word. Listen to God. The Lord says in Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. That's actually, keep quiet and know that I am God. Keep quiet and know that I am God. Or Psalm 95 says, today if you would hear his voice, Do not harden your heart. Listen to God in the person and in the gospel of his son and receive it because it and it only is able to save you. Now I say to you also, if you don't yet know Jesus Christ and if you've never taken him for yourself for the forgiveness of your sins, you're not yet hearing. You've still got your fingers in your ears. And you're not listening to God, you're not receiving his word. And I appeal to you, stop ignoring him. He is speaking to you today. His gospel first tells you bad news, that you're an unrighteous sinner, that you're a sinner in rebellion against him and worthy of condemnation. But then it speaks good words to you, Great good news that Jesus Christ came, sent by God, came to earth as a man to live a life of perfect righteousness and then to die on a cross in the place of those who were unrighteous. And Jesus today is willing to trade with you. If you will repent of your filthiness and your rampant wickedness and your sin and give all that to him, he will take it. 
and wash it clean in his own precious blood. And then in place of your filthiness and your wickedness and your sin, he'll give you his perfect righteousness as a gift, as a gift, a free, gracious gift. He will give you a new life, which will result in a new power to live in love and obedience. And no longer will you have to live a life of anger, a life of running your mouth. You can live under God's good word, humbly receiving it, letting it control you, knowing that it, in the end, will save your soul. So, unbeliever, will you do that today? Will you close your mouth at last and listen to God and receive the Lord Jesus Christ so that you can live and not die? There is no other way. The exchange must take place. Your sin for Jesus' righteousness, and he is ready and willing to make that exchange with you today and transform you into a beautiful new creature. All right, so we must all hear the word. We must all hear the word. And yet we have to be very careful because that's actually not sufficient. We must be careful lest we miss the fact that hearing alone, hearing alone is not enough. We must not be content to be hearers of the word only who never put it into practice. So if James's first point was, hear the word, then the second point he makes is, but don't be a hearer only, be a doer of the word. Let's read verses 22 through 25. But be doers of the word, And not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So we see here, we see here that it is possible to hear the word of God and never to live it out. It is possible to be in proximity to the gospel, even your whole life, and never to truly possess it. You can go to church for decades. You can go to a good church that's faithfully preaching Christ, and you can actually still fail to receive him and his salvation. And you can be deceived the whole time into thinking that everything's fine. What would that look like? It would look like going to church and listening to God's holy law held up to you as in a mirror and thinking you're a Christian and then going out and forgetting that the gospel is actually supposed to produce righteousness in your life. And so to use the language of Titus 1, it would be that with your lips you say you know God, but by your deeds you deny him. That's what Paul says in Titus 1. And that's what the forgetful chap with the mirror is doing. See, mirrors are wonderful things but they're not much use if you don't then go on to apply a comb and a razor and a washcloth. 
See, when I look in the mirror in the morning, what I should say is, ah, yes, I see, I've got bedhead again, I've got sleep in my eyes, and I really need a shave. I better get busy. And similarly, when I encounter God's word, it shows me his righteousness. It shows me the character of Jesus, whose image I'm supposed to be conforming to. And it shows me where my life is still out of step with obedience to him. And now what am I supposed to do? Walk away? Forget what I saw? No, I'm to take the word and put it into practice. And so James warns us, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Because you do understand, don't you? It's possible to be self-deceived, thinking that because you've had some sort of religious experience, or because you've been in church your whole life, or because you've heard the gospel so many times, that you must be saved. You may have professed Christ for years. And it's still possible to be in that situation, and yet never have ever truly been born again of God, which always unfailingly results in becoming a doer of his word. And if you're in that situation, you're still on your way to hell just with a Jesus fish stuck to the back of your vehicle. See, at the end of the day, James says it's doers of the word, not hearers only of the word, who are blessed. Right? That's the end of verse 25. The doers are blessed in their doing. Because blessed, and blessed means saved, and actually on your way to heaven. Because doing, not hearing, is the mark of pure and authentic religion. And just as there is such a thing as pure and authentic religion, there is such a thing as worthless worthless religion and worthless Christianity. So let's look at that in verses 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. I want you to understand what James is doing here. The next section of the letter, which goes from chapter 2 all the way through chapter 4, verse 10. So a significant part of the rest of the letter is devoted to giving three marks of true faith and pure religion. So the next three chapters almost, he's going to spend outlining these marks of true faith. And these verses are a preview of that. He's previewing for us the three main criteria he's going to use to distinguish between true faith that saves and false faith that will not save. So he's setting up his argument here for what's going to follow in the whole next section. This is the topic sentence, if you will. So true saving faith, James says, number one, bridles the tongue. And he's going to use all of chapter three to expand on that idea. Number two, true faith also loves other believers impartially and practically. That's chapter two. 
And number three, true faith rejects worldliness. It forsakes the world and its God-opposing lusts. That's the first part of chapter four. He's setting up his argument. And this is what a doer of the word looks like. A doer is transformed by the gospel so that they live out this kind of righteousness. Whereas a mere hearer who does not have these marks of righteousness is deceiving himself. His Christianity, his religion is worthless. So now let's look briefly at these three marks of doing the word. Number one, a bridled tongue. Like a horse's bridle controls and is, is and puts the horse under control, so our tongues as believers must have reign over them. They must be under control. Why is this a necessary mark of pure religion? Why does James pull this out? Well, it's because of what Jesus says in Luke 6.45. Jesus says, The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So what fills the heart, whatever fills the heart, is what comes of the mouth, ultimately. And therefore, what our tongues speak is an accurate reflection of our heart. Whether what comes out is evil or whether it's good. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, there's something I don't want you to be troubled by. Jesus speaks of good people and evil people. And some of you might be thinking, wait, doesn't the Bible say that everyone is evil? How can Jesus actually talk about good people? Is this saying that good people can be good and and be righteous? No, he's not saying that. He's not teaching about how people come to be good. Believe me, Jesus is clearer than anybody else about the universal sinfulness of man that every single person except himself is born wicked. But Jesus has come as the Savior, and so he is changing people. So a person who heeds his call to repent and believe in the gospel is born again to this new life of righteousness by grace through faith. A believer in Jesus who is saved by the grace of his cross and not by works of the law, he is now a good person. And then Jesus said this reality, the righteousness that has come from outside of him by Jesus that is now transforming him from the inside out, this reality is seen and known by the good that comes from the good treasure that's now filling his heart and spilling out of his mouth. So there's no works-based salvation here. We've just got Jesus and James both agreeing that the tongue reveals accurately the state of the heart, whether it's in right standing with God or whether it's not. So what does your tongue and what do your texting thumbs reveal about the state of your heart? Are they bridled? Are they under the bridling control of righteousness? Or could it be that patterns of destructive speech actually give evidence that your profession of Christianity might be so much worthless religion? What does your tongue reveal about your heart? James wants us to consider that question. All right, the second mark of pure and undefiled religion, the beginning of verse 27. 
True religion includes visiting orphans and widows in their affliction. Now, if you look at my bulletin outline, you've seen that I see that I said that this is a call to love other believers impartially and practically. And I want to defend why I've interpreted it this way. Why is this not a command by James rather to support orphanages throughout the world or set up agencies like food shelves so that the poor in our communities might be better served? I'm saying it's not primarily that. But first, let me say that those things are both noble activities and Christians have a long tradition of being at the forefront of things like these. I just don't think it's what Paul, or what, sorry, what James is talking about here. Why do I say that? The context of James helps us to see that he's talking about love, a get your hands really dirty kind of love for those who are needy and vulnerable within the covenant community of the church. Where do I get that? Well, let's look. I'll steal some thunder from chapter 2. Look for a moment at verse 1 of chapter 2. Remember what I said earlier. Chapter 2 is his expansion on visit widows and orphans in their affliction. So in verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And then he goes on to rebuke the favoritism that these, that these congregations are showing to the rich at the expense of the poor in their gatherings. James's audience has been showing preference to the beautiful people and dishonoring the poor when they meet, and that's just wrong and wicked. And James is rebuking it. See, love, which is the mark of true faith, has to be impartial. It has to be lavished upon those that the world holds of little account, but who are precious to Jesus because they believe in him. And then look down further. Look at verse 15 of chapter 2. Again, I'm saying that this is an interpretation of what it means to visit orphans and widows in their distress. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? I.e., no good. And this is why I say James's concern is primarily that they love needy Christians. If a brother or sister the needy in the community of those who know the Lord and confess the Lord Jesus. And this context is what leads me to see the widows and orphans of our text as primarily referring to those within the church who are helpless and in need of love in the form of meaningful, tangible help. That love indeed for Jesus. Needy brothers and sisters is what James points to as marks, as the mark of true religion. If you're still struggling with that idea, I want you to also to think back on the historical context from the book of Acts. Remember, James is writing to Christians who were dispersed after fleeing persecution, after that persecution arose in Jerusalem, Stephen gets martyred, the church gets scattered. So if, these, if that's who these folks are, what would they remember about how widows and orphans were cared for in the Jerusalem Apostolic Church? 
Well, that was a pretty big deal, right? So much so that when it became clear that the Greek-speaking widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food, the apostles get everyone together and have a big congregational meeting and say, we got to fix this. We have to make sure that the widows are being provided for impartially. So let's appoint godly men to oversee that work. But let me ask you, which widows were the apostles talking about? All the widows in Jerusalem without distinction? No, it was the widows, the poor, and the needy within the church. See, Acts 4.34 says there was not a needy person among them because those with means were sharing generously of what they had with those without means. See, the priority of God's church right from the beginning has been to take care of the needy, the widows, the orphans who are within the community of faith. And with that background, I hope you'll at least give me a hearing that when James, who is one of the heads of that church in Jerusalem, says to us, pure religion is visiting orphans and widows in their affliction, that's talking primarily about the needy within the church. But either with relief or with an uneasy conscience, that that means, oh, well, this means I'm off the hook for care of the needy. It does not. Not at all. In fact, this places you under a significant obligation. You are directly responsible as part of the righteousness by which you must be marked as a doer of the word, lest your faith be revealed as worthless on the last day. You are responsible to make sure that there are no needy among us. So if one of our widows or someone else in our congregation becomes impoverished, you are responsible to make sure that their needs are lavishly cared for and use your own means to do it. And I think clearly this passage is primarily talking about supporting them financially and making sure that their physical needs are cared for. But but let's expand the category a little bit. What about the care for them relationally? What about... How are we doing as a church with reaching out to the widows among us and those who are relationally needy in order to make sure that they feel the community caring for them? Are you thinking about that when you decide who you're going to invite to dinner or the Super Bowl party or whatever? Are you thinking about our needy ones Are you thinking about our widows? It ought to be on the radar. Yes, it's primarily talking about meeting their physical needs. But I would say let's let's broaden that category. And broaden it in another way again. Let's emulate the early church again and care for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering all over the world. So do you remember also in Acts what happened when the famine hit Jerusalem really hard? So Paul then goes around, he starts going around to all the Gentile churches in, in Asia Minor and in Europe, and he collects an offering for the relief, 2 Corinthians 8.4, the relief of the saints. This offering was taken to support the impoverished believers in Jerusalem and not the poor in general. 
But these were people the Gentiles had never met. And let us ask, therefore, how can we engage more zealously to relieve the actual distress of fellow believers throughout the world who are in need? And that's why I'm so glad that we added three new missions initiatives to our 2022 budget. We added Shadrach Vega's gospel, uh, gospel labors in Cameroon. Cameroon, where the average salary is like $100 a year. Ecclesia Africa, providing resources for churches throughout Africa. And Christ Community Telugu Church, working among Indian migrant workers in Abu Dhabi. Let us have it as our ambition, though, to do still more, both as a church and as individual believers, to use our resources to provide practically and impartially for those of Jesus' people who are struggling to meet their basic needs, especially orphans and widows. And let our firm resolve, moreover, be that we will faithfully fulfill our obligations to one another and meet the needs of the saints at RGC who may be struggling. Because God forbid that there should be a needy person among us. God forbid. All right, then the last mark of pure religion. Number three, rejecting worldliness. Much more on that to come in chapter four. But let me just quote four, chapter four, verse four. James is going to say, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be the friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Strong words from James. The world with its God-hating lusts and passions cannot, must not, be the object of your desire. What it values must not be what you value. What it delights in, you must not delight in. What it pursues, you must not pursue. Because you don't belong to the world anymore. You are a stranger and an alien in Vanity Fair. You must not easily fit in. Like Christian and faithful in Pilgrim's Progress, you must stand out as an oddity. An oddity that people look at really differently and even with hostility because you don't love the things they love. Not being conformed any longer to the pattern of this world. Save the rest for future weeks. So to conclude, pure and undefiled religion, religion that will be shown to be genuine in the sight of God on the last great day, is a matter of bridling our tongues, loving impartially and practically, and avoiding worldliness. This does not mean we are saved by these things. That would be impossible. No person could ever set out to earn a righteous standing by doing these things and succeed in the attempt. We are only and always saved by faith in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But James is laboring long and will labor long that this kind of obedience is the necessary fruit of saving faith. So if there's no transformation, no doing of the word, it reflects a heart with no genuine faith. It's a religion that is undefiled before our God and Father. It will be acceptable to him as the evidence of saving faith. It's using our tongues for righteousness, caring for the needs 
of the community of the saints, especially those who are needy and most vulnerable, widows, orphans. And it's rejecting the allure of the world with its distractions and pleasures and sinful passions. See, James does not want you to be deceived. James does not want you to be deceived. If you've truly been brought forth by the word of God, if you are truly receiving the word implanted, which is able to save your soul, then you will necessarily demonstrate that that's so by being a doer of the word. It's the witness of this passage. It's the witness of the Lord Jesus. It's the witness of all the scriptures. Saved by free grace alone of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that grace without fail transforming us into those who increasingly and with all our mind, soul, strength, heart, love the Lord our God and our neighbors as ourselves. Let's pray. Father in heaven, if there are those among us who have a worthless Christianity, oh God, let this study in James be the means of opening their eyes. And may they be truly converted. For those who have no profession of faith at all in Jesus, but who realize that this kind of obedience and righteousness is foreign to them, Lord, may this be compelling. May they seek it in Jesus. And may those of us who are truly yours be pressed and moved still further along that we might be more zealous to keep control over our tongues, more zealous in love, impartially for the brothers, more zealous in keeping ourselves unstained by the world. Lord, work in us the fruit of this obedience, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.